Thanks, Amy. Hi, everyone. My name is Ming, and I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. I'd like to add my welcome to Andrews. It's so great to be with you all here. Uh, we're continuing in our series in Matthew. We've been working our way through that week by week. And here we've hit what Andrew described earlier as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and this is Jesus giving, talking all about what it looks like and what it means to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. But uh, so before we dig into that, keep your Bibles open and let's pray and ask that God might speak to us clearly. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you're a good God. You're a God who doesn't just tell us what we want to hear, but you tell us what we need to hear. And so as you open up your word today, as we open up what, Jesus, what might be Jesus' best sermon spoken so clearly to us, might it convict our hearts, might it challenge us, and might it just encourage us to live lives that might honor and glorify you. And we ask above all else that it might help us be captivated by your son and hold on to him for the rest of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our day and age, identity is more and more associated with what we do. See, when you first meet someone, what are you tempted to ask? Hey, what's your name and what do you do? What's your job? What do you study? And I was kind of noticing this a couple of weeks ago when I was reading my son Timothy a few books. We even teach our kids this. You see, Bob the Builder, Thomas the Tank Engine, Dora the Explorer, we ground identity around what we do. What is our role in this world? As students, it's a massive deal figuring out what we're going to do and study at uni. And it plays a big part in our identity across our studies. And then we become adults. And our identity becomes lawyer, engineer, parent, plumber, accountant. And then when you tell someone what you are, what do you think comes to mind for them? Oh, so you're someone who's, who's studying at uni. Oh, so you're someone who cleans people's teeth and performs root canals. Oh, so your mum, as if it's some second-rate job. They build a picture of us based on what they think we do. It's all about what we do. And so let me ask, when someone tells you they're a Christian, hi, I'm Ming, a Christian, what comes to mind for you? Is it what you think I do? Someone who reads their Bible, prays, goes to church, gets baptized? Or is it something else? Because today in Matthew 5, this first part of Jesus' sermon, we see Jesus reveal the identity and purpose of a Christian. Someone who's a citizen of heaven. And I wonder if it matches up with what comes to mind for you. Matthew chapter 5 comes right after what we saw last week. That Jesus was all about preaching the kingdom of heaven the coming of God's kingdom, the coming of the end of evil. Justice, peace, God's rule on earth, all those things were what Israel were waiting for because those are the things that God had promised. And here in chapter 5, we get to hear what living the kingdom life looks like now that the king, King Jesus, has come. So have a look with me, verse 1, it's up on the screen. When he, when Jesus, saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them. Matthew chapter 5 to 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus preached all of it on a mountain. And throughout the Bible, big things happen on mountains. On Mount Sinai, back in the Old Testament, God spoke and made a new people, a new nation. And here, Jesus speaks on a mountain, showing us what it looks like to be a part of God's kingdom. And what's happening here is Jesus is saying this. He's saying, I'm the new Moses. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus goes up a mountain 
to illuminate how to understand the law, just what Moses said on Mount Sinai. But what Jesus is doing here is that he's laying the foundations, not of, a, not of the nation of Israel, not of how to be a good citizen of Israel, but of a new people. A new people who would trust in him and live lives that don't just follow a bunch of rules, but live truly transformed lives. Hearts that love and cherish what God cherishes. And so Jesus begins this whole sermon on the mount with eight promises. Eight promises of blessings for the citizens of heaven. But before we look at these blessings, we need to ask, what does it mean to be blessed? You know, I had a quick look on Facebook and Twitter the other day for the hashtag blessed tag. And more than anything nowadays, blessed is the humble brag. College scholarship, hashtag blessed. Unexpected raise, hashtag blessed. Wonderful family, hashtag blessed. Even Bruno Mars is hashtag blessed for being too fresh. And as Christians, we love using the word too. We pray asking God to bless our food, to bless our friends and family, and to bless our work. But what does it mean? How should we understand it? And it's so important we get this right so we understand what God is actually promising us here. So sometimes our modern translations of Matthew 5 will translate blessed as happy. But being blessed is more than just being happy. There are people who are blessed at a particular moment, but are not happy. And sadly, there are many lost people in our world who are walking around happy as can be, but are far from blessed, because they have rejected God and rejected the message of His Son. To be blessed means to be approved by God. The blessed person is the person who God looks favorably upon. And what our passage today makes so clear is the greatest blessing of all is to be a part of God's kingdom. Just look at the first and last blessing of the eight promises. They're up on the screen, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then in verse 10 it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. These verses are like the, the bookends of the eight blessings. And what they're saying is, to be blessed by God means to have a place in his kingdom. It's to be a citizen of heaven. And then all the blessings in between all the six others describe parts of what it means to have a place in God's kingdom. The point is, Jesus is describing what it means to be truly blessed. And the thing to realize more than anything else, the thing God wants for us, his people, the things that are great in the kingdom of heaven are nearly always things that are ignored or despised here on earth. So, what does a citizen of heaven look like? Jesus gives us eight marks. I've listed them out in your outlines. They're numbered. And let's work through them together. Verse 3, the first one. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Being poor in spirit means recognizing our true spiritual state and true spiritual need before God. Poor in spirit is an attitude of humility before God. Someone who doesn't pretend God owes us something or that we can impress God with our good works. Poverty of spirit is someone who deeply realizes just how much they need God's mercy and forgiveness. Now, I think Jesus captures this best in a parable he tells us in Luke 18. It's worth reading. I put it on the screen, so come with me to Luke 18 from verse 10. It says this. Two men went up to the temple to pray. 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Which one do you think went home blessed? A member of the kingdom. It was not the self-righteous Pharisee, it's the tax collector, a sinner who was poor in spirit. Now, it's important to note, poverty of spirit is not low self-esteem. It's not, I'm hopeless, I can't do anything right. The poor in spirit actually often have good self-esteem because they find their identity in God and not what they do or in themselves. Being poor in spirit is genuinely recognizing our own sin that we haven't treated God as God, and so we need mercy. And every Christian knows that, don't they? That's why we come to Jesus in faith, because we recognize our need for Jesus and our need for forgiveness. Now at this point, before going any further, I want to make sure we really understand poverty of spirit. Because you see, it'd be so easy for us to get overwhelmed and burdened with the radical demands we see Jesus make over the next couple of weeks as we spend time in the Sermon on the Mount. But in reality, it's all in there to produce in us, first and foremost, poverty of spirit. It's there to show us that we don't live God's way, and we need God's forgiveness that we find only in Jesus. And this is probably why Jesus begins his whole sermon with poverty of spirit, because it's the very foundation of what it means to be a kingdom citizen. So let's not forget it. So the next mark, the next mark is mourning. Verse 4, it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is not simply saying, if you mourn, one day God will make you happy. That's not the point. It's making a contrast between the attitude of people who live for the kingdom of heaven and the people who live for this world. See, our world lives for pleasure. Our world says, look out for number one. Make yourself happy. That's what life is all about. This world thinks to be blessed is to be happy, satisfied, and have everything you want. But Jesus reminds us here, if you are a part of my kingdom, you will mourn for this world. You will mourn firstly at your own sinfulness, at those times we say and think things we're all ashamed of. But more than that, we mourn at the state of this broken world. We mourn and say, come back, Lord Jesus. Come back and bring a day where there'll be no more lies, no more war, pain, suffering, or tears, no more people hurting each other. This is a great reminder to be careful if you are too happy and content and comfortable in this world. Yes, we should be content in Christ, content in what Jesus has done for us, but be careful if you are too happy with this life. The Christian is always meant to be a little dissatisfied. And I don't mean dissatisfied in the sense that I wish I had a nicer car, and I wish I had a nicer house, and I wish I had a nicer... No, that's sin. That's called greed. I mean dissatisfied in the sense that our sin and the sin of this world rubs us the wrong way. And here's the thing. There are many people who mourn that this world is not how things should be. And it's one thing to be dissatisfied with the world because it's broken, but it's another thing to be dissatisfied with the world because you know what it should be like and what it will be like. 
This is what sets apart the citizen of heaven. The third mark, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Often, the humble are seen as people who, who miss out, people who get trampled on. But the humility Jesus is talking about here is not weakness like that. What it is, is voluntarily giving up our rights. Voluntarily giving up our interest to put God and other people first. It's not reluctantly and resentfully giving up our rights because we're too weak to stand up to them. No, it's voluntary because we're choosing to put God first and others first. And this is not weak. In fact, it takes incredible courage an incredible strength of character to do, to do this, doesn't it? The last couple of years, uh, the last couple of years, I was living in Sydney with no existing friends or family, and it was a massive litmus test for my wife Angela and I. We had just had our first child. We left an awesome church family, and it was easy for us to assume how we should be treated or what we what we liked to be treated like back in Sydney. You know, I found myself complaining. Why don't I get as many upfront opportunities as my classmates? I found myself groaning. Why did I get rostered on to wash the community toilets during exam week? And to my shame, I even found myself whining at generosity. When Timothy was first born, I said to Angela, why did our neighbors give us their leftovers when we cooked them a full meal for their first child? Instead of humility, I was acting entitled. Now, there's no better way to illustrate humility than to look at Jesus himself. See, the ruler, creator, and sustainer of this universe walks to the cross to die. No one forced him to do that. He did it voluntarily. He did it for us. You know, our world says, stand up for your rights, look out for yourself. The kingdom of heaven says, look out for others, give up your rights. Yes, the humble and meek will often miss out now. They'll get ridiculed or laughed at at work for doing that. But the kingdom of heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, you'll inherit the whole earth. The fourth mark is in verse 6, and it says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is not talking about food or water. It's saying, what do you really long for? That's what you hunger and thirst for. What is it that makes you think, this is what I crave more than anything else. That is what I need. Jesus says the person who belongs to the kingdom of heaven longs for righteousness. And here, Jesus simply means godliness. He means they long to please God. They're unhappy with their sin, and they confess it to God, and they seek to repent and live God's way. And it means not longing for the things of this world. All too often, we hunger and thirst, but we hunger and thirst for very worldly things. You know, I've, I know I've got that problem. A recent bad habit of mine is the Facebook marketplace. Yeah, am I the only one who reckons there's so many good deals on there? Like, just remember, people, if it's too good to be true, it's potentially a scam. But anyway, Facebook is always magically listening in on all my convos and all my wants, and it's really revealing what I long for. Gadgets, video games, furniture, new toys for my son. What are you hunger and thirst for? When you wake up at night, what are you dreaming about? If someone listened in on all your convos, what are you talking about? What do you long for? Is it this world? 
or is it righteousness? It's worth taking this moment to sort of skip ahead to the sixth mark of the kingdom because it's related. And it says in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I think this is really important because sometimes we can fall into the trap of hungering and thirsting, not for righteousness, but the appearance of righteousness. The Pharisees and religious teachers of Jesus' day looked incredibly righteous. And when Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness, they would have said, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. Look at all our good works. But Jesus would say, your hearts are as black as coal. See, God doesn't care about appearances. And this verse makes us look at ourselves and asks the question, how do I act when no one is looking? What do I think about when no one can see in there? This is purity of heart. Do I hunger and thirst for true, heartfelt, internal righteousness or just a shallow, hollow show of righteousness? There are only two people who can see into your heart. I can't see into your heart. You can see into your heart, and God can see into your heart. Let's jump back to the fifth mark in verse 7, and it says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Mercy is all about how you treat people who are in need. And God shows us incredible mercy, doesn't he? Because we are all in need. We are helpless in standing before God, and yet he sends his son Jesus, even though we don't deserve it, to offer forgiveness. And Jesus so often makes this point. If you know the mercy of God, it will show itself in the way you treat others. And he would say, the one who is forgiven much loves much, and the one who is forgiven little loves little. And our problem is not that there's little to forgive in our lives. Our problem is that we don't realize just how poor in spirit we are. And this is one of the things that I hope we realize more and more as we dig into Matthew 5 to 7. See, all too often, we say, oh, I know the forgiveness of God. Yes, Jesus died for my sins. I know the drill. Yet, we then hold a grudge against the person who has wronged us. Jesus says, forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. And he has forgiven us abundantly, hasn't he? So let me ask, are you quick to forgive or are you quick to demand your rights? Are you compassionate with others or are you impatient? Now, apologies if you're confused with all the jumping around at this stage. If you're lost, we're now at the seventh mark of the kingdom, verse 9. It's up on the screen. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Now, in the next couple of verses, Jesus will warn us about the persecution and conflict that comes with following him. But the point is, as followers of Jesus, we should never seek conflict be res- or be responsible for it or initiate it. We are to pursue peace. How? By being slow to speak and quick to listen. By showing grace and forgiveness rather than seeking revenge. These are the sorts of things Jesus means by being a peacemaker. Someone who repents and apologizes when they're wrong and by offering forgiveness when you are wronged. And this is related to the eighth and final mark of the kingdom, verse 10. It says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You know, it's interesting. One of the clearest, clearest promises of God for this life is this. If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. Sometimes you'll hear preachers making all sorts of promises about money, health, 
or wealth in this life. You'll hear all sorts of things on the internet, but the one certain clear promise we actually get is if you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted at some, in some way at some point. Now, to be persecuted for righteousness is to be persecuted, defamed, made fun of, even disowned, because you choose to stand with Jesus, because you choose to live God's way and be different to the world around us. Notice it doesn't say, blessed, blessed those who are persecuted because they are arrogant or obnoxious or rude. There are times I've had to gently say to Christians, the persecution you are facing is not because of Jesus, it's because of the way you treat people. So don't mistake persecution for obnoxiousness as persecution for the gospel. Now, the persecution for the gospel can take all sorts of different forms. In many parts of the world, this will sadly and seriously be bombs, beheadings, death, and our Western media does not really cover this because it's not fashionable. But persecution is not just explosions and pillaging. Persecution is words and exclusion. It's rejection. In our day-to-day, in our Western society, simply holding on to righteousness, simply for saying, I believe God's moral standards are what's best for people, we're called bigots, we're called homophobes, we're called fools and nutcases. Don't be surprised by that. Don't be shocked by that. But continue to stand for righteousness, even if it means people call you names. And Jesus said this would happen in verses 11 and 12, and he says at the end of them, he says in verse 12, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Now, Notice here, like the first mark of the kingdom, poverty of spirit, the eighth mark is very closely tied to being in the kingdom of heaven. I said earlier that these are kind of like the bookends, right? And it reminds us, if you never face persecution of any kind, if no one ever says anything to you about your Christian faith, then that might just suggest that you either do not display any of these marks of the kingdom, or no one knows you're a Christian, And at that point, you have to ask, am I actually a member of the kingdom of heaven if I'm not even willing to say I'm with Jesus? 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 12 says this, all who want to live a godly life in Christ, Jesus, will be persecuted. Not might be, will be. So these are the eight marks of a citizen of heaven. And as Jesus describes all this, How do you feel? Do you feel confident where you say to yourself, yep, that's me? Do you feel guilty where you've realized all the areas you've fallen short? Maybe you're a little unsure now. Can I really call myself a Christian? There is a very real sense that these are unobtainable for anyone, even the Christian. So why is Jesus telling us all this? The key As Jesus describes what it looks like to be a citizen of heaven, the key is to realize that he's describing himself, the one who has done it for us. This is not simply a list to just make us feel bad or some boxes to tick. This is a description of the one who did it for us. And this gives us the freedom to live his way. Not because it's not some exam we need to pass, something that we need to obtain, but because it's our very identity in Christ who we are, and who are we becoming if we trust in Jesus. And this is why Christians will look different, which is Jesus' very next point. 
So have a look, verse 13, it's up on the screen. You are the salt of the earth, but if the, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. So what's the purpose of the Christian in this world? Jesus says Christians are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's their purpose. So let's first look at salt. What does it mean to be the salt of the earth? Well, salt is one of those things where you know when it's there and you know when it's not there. You know, a couple of months ago, I had to survive a few nights without my wife, Angela, because she had to go have, stay a couple of nights in the hospital. So it was just me and my son, Timothy. No problem, right? But come mealtime, I forgot to add salt to our meal. I forgot to, to season it. And not only did I not really enjoy dinner, it was tasteless, but Timothy was, was crying his eyes out, you know, the classic toddler tantrum, and I could not get him to eat. But it wasn't just salt that Timothy and I knew was missing. We were missing Angela. It was obvious that Angela wasn't there. And this is the same with Christians. Being a salty Christian isn't about being a preservative or tasteful or yummy to this world. It's about being distinct and noticeable. See, when you move out of, when you move out of your flat or move houses, your neighbors ought to notice. Not be, just because you were a friendly neighbor, but because you stood out. And when you change jobs or enter or graduate from uni, move cities, the people around you notice because you're different. They wonder, this person isn't like everyone else. They don't live for this world. They value something far greater. They look forward to more than just the weekend. This person is a citizen of heaven. They are the salt of the world. Now, Jesus goes on to say, if salt loses its saltiness, it's to be thrown out and trampled on. And for some of us, this might raise the question, what if my life isn't actually salty? We all face times where we, if we were to put a mirror in front of us, we don't always think that our lives are salty or match up with what Jesus is saying here. And so there are two things to remember coming out from this. The first is grace. Remember the first mark of the kingdom, poverty of spirit. We see our true spiritual need before God, and so we lean on Him for forgiveness. And God is faithful and willing to forgive. But at the same time, secondly, Jesus does want us to hunger and thirst for righteousness and a pure heart. And later on in chapter 7, Jesus' concern is that people truly hear His words. And He says in chapter 7, verse 21 to 24, you can read them later, uh, He says, there will be some people who look like salt from the outside. You know, they prophesy, they cast out demons, they do things in the name of Jesus. Yet at the same time, none of it is real. They don't have the marks of the kingdom. They're not actually salty. They, they feel granular. They're white, but there's nothing there. No flavor, no essence. And so God tells them, I never knew you. This is huge, and for me, one of the scariest verses in the Bible now, it's not saying we need to be perfect, but following the perfect one, Jesus, must change our lives. So the question is, do the people around me know that I'm a Christian? And like I said earlier, it's not so much, do you go to church? Do you read your Bible? Do you pray? These are good things. 
But I think it's easy for people to know those are the things we do because it's just part of, part of what we do. But really, if our identity is that we're citizens of heaven, kingdom citizens, how could we not live differently for, to this world? Fitting in, looking like everyone else, means we're just like everyone else. Living for this world's kingdom, not God's. Now, this will look differently for all of us. Some of you will have lived the Christian life longer than others. Some will have been through harder or different things. So it's hard for me to know exactly what being salty will look like for you. But whatever situation you're in, if you have seen who Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he's bringing in, then your life will look different, won't it? Now, the second picture Jesus gives is related. The purpose of a Christian is to be a light in the world. They help people see beyond simply what's right in front of them. They help lift people's eyes beyond this world. And Jesus goes on to encourage us in verse 16. It says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Now, when Jesus says these words, he's thinking of the Old Testament and the nation of Israel. See, God's people, Israel, were meant to be different from the nations around them. They were meant to be a light to the nations and testify to God. And here in Matthew 5, Jesus is establishing a new people, a new Israel, and he's sowing the seeds of a new people who would trust him and be a light to the world around them. And what Jesus is saying is, when people see how distinct your life is, see how salty and different you are, they can't help but ask why. Why aren't you scrambling around like the rest of us for the here and now? How are you so strong when something so terrible has happened to you? Why aren't you obsessed with being in with the best relationships, getting the best career, buying the biggest house? Why? It's because I'm a citizen of heaven, and there's something far greater than just this world, and it can be yours too. Jesus is encouraging us to keep living out who we are. Not who you want to be, like the world tells us, but who you are, a citizen of heaven. Someone whose identity is not in what you do, but in who you trust, Jesus. You know, it's very easy to be distinct and noticeable in this world. You could dye your hair bright pink. You could talk really loudly in the library. You could train harder, get in earlier, leave later than everyone else on your sports team or at work. Give all your time to humanitarian efforts. It's easy to be distinct and noticeable for many reasons. But it's very hard to be different to the world from in here. Our hearts, where no one can see. And there's a verse at the end of 1 Timothy, and it starts off by talking about sin. And it says that some sins are obvious, but some sins take time to come out. And it says in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 25, in the very next verse, In the same way, likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Keep living out who you are, even in the small ways. It's not always about the big, obvious things, but the little things too. People will know and will notice. Jesus is giving us an encouragement to keep persevering in good works, especially in the face of persecution we should expect. Don't lose your saltiness. Continue to be a light in this world, lifting people's eyes to be on this world. So the next time, you tell, next time you tell someone you're a Christian, what will come to mind for them? What you do, 
goes to church, gives to charity, doesn't smoke or drink, you know, a bit of a buzzkill? Or is it who you trust and what you cherish? Eternity, kingdom values, Jesus. Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. And back then, they had racial segregation, black and white leagues. And in his first year of the league, in almost every match, he faced criticism, boos, unfair umpiring, and even exclusion from his own teammates. And about halfway through the season, Jackie was at his breaking point. He wanted to fight back. He said he wanted to punch someone. He and his team's owner were Christians, and the owner said this to him at about at halftime. He said this quote. I'll try to imitate his voice. He's apparently a bit of a smoker. He said this to Jackie. You're living the sermon. We need a player who's got the guts to not fight back. People aren't going to like this. They're going to do anything to get you to react. Echo a curse with a curse and they'll hear only yours. Follow a blow with a blow and they'll say, the Negro lost his temper. That the Negro doesn't belong. Your enemy will be out in force, but you cannot meet him on his own low ground. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. Can you do it? Jackie Robinson went on to win Rookie of the Year that year and the respect of his teammates. But it wasn't just his good play that won him respect. It was that he was different from everyone around him. He bore the marks of the kingdom. And the real victory wasn't just the end of racial segregation in Major League Baseball. It was that everyone's eyes were lifted, that they saw and questioned that there was more to their comfortable little world than this life. They got a glimpse of the kingdom of heaven. Maybe you're someone here who's not yet a Christian. Today, if you have seen who Jesus is and the kind of kingdom he's bringing in, don't wait. Come to Jesus today. So as we wrap up, why don't we pray that people might see in us not simply what we do outwardly, but what's in here? A dependence on Christ, the one who grows in us the marks of the kingdom, the one who is even why we can be a, kingdom member, a member of the kingdom in the first place. So let's pray that that is what people might see in our lives. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, you are such a gracious and merciful God that even though we are poor in spirit, you gave us your son and showed us great mercy through your son, Jesus. We pray now that as we have seen the life that he has lived, the perfect life, uh, and he is our worthy sacrifice, might we follow in his footsteps and depend on him in all things. Help us to be a salt and light in this world. Help us to be distinct and different and live lives that are for eternity. And might you soften the hearts of people around us and to see through our life your son, Jesus. Uh, please help us to do this by your spirit, your son Jesus who dwells in us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.